All right, let's kill the AC. All right, awesome. Worship, body worship by the missions team. Looking very, some swag. Our church has got swag, amen? And Jason, uh, Jesse with a special song. And Jesse, I'm going to give you, I'm going I'm to I'm have you uh, play again in the near future. But you know what song I really want to hear? Well, you used to do uh, Grace's Amazing Hands by Dave Barnes. Yeah, I haven't heard that in a while. I, need, I, need, I want you to play that next time, all right? <laughs> this song was good. I, I want you to play that song. I, th- I think that's like, that's like your song. I remember that's your signature song. But uh, thank you for playing for us and blessing us. And uh, let's get into it today. Uh, as usual, uh, you guys will be clapping. But today, uh, let's clap at the 40-minute mark. Let me try to get through a little bit more of my sermon. Oh, Hilchu, you're back. Welcome back. All right. All right. My sister Hilchu was, was uh, studying abroad for about a year. Hey, we also have um, our intern swap uh, staff who are away at Living Hope Christian Center at the Ark out in Emeryville, California. They were there for about three weeks, and they had sent over some of their staff and they just returned, uh, our staff returned last night, or, or Friday night. And so uh, let's welcome back uh, Rona and Pastor Myoha. Let's welcome them back. All right, guys, stand up. Stand up for a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back. Be sure to ask them about their time. And I'm sure they have many wonderful stories, testimonies to share. All right, so today I'm going to continue my sonship series of sermons. And today we're going to be looking at that word that I told you we would look at, the Greek word oikos. Everybody say oikos. oikos. So in the Greco-Roman usage of the word, oikos meant a physical house, a dwelling. It very often also meant a temple. So even for non-Judeo uh, places of worship, they would use that word oikos. It could be a temple. It could also mean wealth, possessions, family, or family property. So these are all the various ways in which uh, 2,000 years ago, the culture of that time, used the Greek word oikos. Now, in the Old Testament, there is, uh, everyone say Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. Okay, that's the language that the Jews have traditionally spoken, Hebrew. And back a little before Jesus arrived on the earth, uh, the Jews, they translated the Bible into Greek because many of the Hellenistic Jews, many of the Jews of that time, did not know how to speak or read Hebrew. So they had to get a translation of the Old Testament into everybody's hands. So they translated the Old Testament into the Greek, and that's what we call the Septuagint. Everybody say Septuagint. So in the Septuagint, it translates Old Testament phrases into oikos. And the most common Hebrew word that's translated into oikos is the Hebrew word bayit. Bayit. That's the word for house. And it appears quite frequently in the Septuagint. And oikos theu is oftentimes used for the Hebrew words bayit Elohim, which means literally the house of God. You guys know what Elohim means? Okay, Elohim means God. Elohim. Elohim. It's actually, it's a plural word, so it's kind of interesting. Anyway, um, and so... This word, oikos theu, which is used for bayit Elohim, was often used as a fixed term for the Jewish sanctuary. And this is also the word used, uh, this is the phrase used in Genesis 28, 17, where Jacob wakes up from this vision of angels and, 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 a, and a stairway to heaven, a ladder going up to heaven. And I'll talk about that passage a little bit later. It's very interesting. And so... Uh, Oikos has a very rich tradition. Now, in the New Testament, just like in the Septuagint, we find the term oikos theu, the house of God, being used 
mostly in honor of the Jewish earthly sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary of Israel. But then the word also uh, begins to be used to refer to the Christian community, also as the house of God. Now, all this research is coming from Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. All right, you guys can go search for this. All right, I was just doing a little bit of word search on the word oikos. Um, and also, Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 5, refers to the church as a spiritual house, or an oikos pneumatikos, a spiritual house. All right, and so, in the New Testament, it's used for both the Jewish sanctuary and also for the Christian community. Okay, everybody feel me? Y'all with me? Okay. All right, very good. So, the term house of God is a term that is used in the early church. It became used in the early church as a synonym for the Christian community. So, uh, in the Midrash, which is a Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, uh, in the Midrash on Numbers 12, verse 7, uh, it says, quote, In the Old Testament... My house refers to Israel itself, the people. So that the New Testament exegesis reminds us of the equation, house of God and the community. Indeed, the Midrash presupposes theologically that the community is the house of God. Okay, let me just, in other words, what it's saying is house of God is not just referring to a physical building. Even in the Old Testament, house of God was used for Israel as a community itself. And so by the time it is used in the New Testament, it already presupposes that that phrase house of God is not talking just about a physical sanctuary or a physical place of worship, but also to the community that is built up in Christ. House of God. So, kind of sum it up, in the Old Testament... Oikos is primarily used as a temple and sanctuary, but a New Testament is used for a community, a Christian community, a family of God. In the Old Testament, it was referring to a physical house. But after Christ came, the house of God now refers more and more to a spiritual house. How many of you guys know that here in New Philly, we have an awesome house? This is an awesome house. An oikos of God that is not easily shaken. An oikos of God, which I'm about to talk to talk about these little... Okay, let me talk about... Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Turn to 1 Timothy 3.15. 1 Timothy Usually I preach a three-point sermon, and today will be no different. I will preach a three-point sermon because psychologically the human brain remembers three things, groups of three, the easiest. All right? And so it's a teaching method. does not mean that I don't have ten points that I could pull out. I'm just pulling out the three best points. All right? So let's look at 1 Timothy 3.15. I'm going to read from the ESV. I'm going to read that together. One, two, three, go. If I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Amen. Now, here in this passage, we have an explicit equation. The oikos, here is the oiko, uh, which is a dative masculine singular of oikos. Uh, Here is talking about the... We ought to know how one should behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So there you go. If you you had any questions or discomforts with using the word house to refer to the church, here you go. 1 Timothy 3.15 is explicit usage, right? And number one, my first point is God wants his house to be a pillar of truth. Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him, God wants this house to be a pillar of truth. Turn to your na- other neighbor. Tell him, this is a pillar of truth. Now, the ESV, man, I don't know what buttress means. Pillar and buttress. You know, let's go and 
meat by the butcheress. I don't know the last time anyone used that word. That is like, that is like a, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, the NIV uses foundation. So the church is a pillar and foundation of truth. Isn't that true? You can go to Harvard University and Harvard will teach you a thing or two. But Harvard is not a pillar of truth. Although it started out that way. Even Columbia University. You know the old, old name for Columbia was? The King's University. And if you look all around the campus, it's in Latin. Right? Latin stuff. <laughs> Says something like, God is truth or something. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Actually, that's at Yonsei University. <laughs> hey, Yonsei University had a similar history, all right? The young people of a previous generation, they got on fire for God. And they were able to, God brought the wealth of the nations to them. And they opened up these amazing schools. And because back then, you know, education was not available to all. And they got a vision of giving everybody an education, a higher education, so that uh, they can really be a blessing to the community. And it started out as an institution of truth, biblical truth. But uh, eventually the leadership, I think there was, you know, you know, my theory is there was a lack of sonship in the universities. Because if there were good sons coming down in the university leadership, a good son would have stewarded and been faithful to the original vision of the, of the father, the founding father of the school. But instead of sons, you got employees. You just got servants. You got just people who want to maximize profit, not take a stand for truth. And so a lot of these universities, they do a lot of great things. Don't get me wrong. All right. They are still, uh, how many of y'all, anyone graduated from Ivy League University here? Raise your hand if you graduated from Ivy League University. Yeah, go ahead and boast. Go ahead and, uh, <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing. You put your hands down. <laughs> Did that make you just uncomfortable just now? <laughs> Where the universities are, are not standing. Where uh, corporations are also not the pillar of truth. And you would hope even the fabric of society, families, will be the pillar of truth. But families have, are not always the place where truth is taught. This is why the Bible says that the house of God, the church of God, the church of the living God must be a pillar, a foundation for truth on the earth. If people want to find out God's ways, if people want to know truth, they should be able to step into a church and find truth. But you know what the problem has been? The church has not taken her place. The church has lacked maturity. The church has been deficient in certain ways. The church has been attacked by the enemy. Church has forsaken certain good traditions and held on to other bad traditions. Because the church is not taking their place, a lot of people who are searching for truth do not always find truth in the church. And so what do they end up doing? They go to other places looking for truth. Hollywood. Australia. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just ran out of, ran out of examples all of a sudden. <laughs> Why would you go to Australia for truth? No, I'm playing. We love Australia. That's why it's very important that in any good house of God, the word of God must be highly esteemed. It must be honored. It must not only be correctly taught, but it must be applied to the lives of its hearers. Jesus calls the person who hears the word but does not do it a fool. And we have too many houses that are full of fools. People who come and they hear the sermon and then they go away and they forget what that revelation was. They hear it thinking, I'm not going to apply that to my life. Thinking, this has nothing to do with me. But praise the Lord that God is raising up houses at this hour that are not... Just settling for that status quo. I mean, here at our church, right, we have our leaders, 
I require them to listen to every sermon that I preach or Pastor Aaron preaches. So we as the lead pastors of, of the house, we believe that our words is what is fathering the sons and daughters of the house. We father the sons and daughters. We even counsel and shepherd them through our teachings. You know, you know, some people, they need this personal one-on-one counseling. You know, I need some prayer. I need you to talk to me. I need you to counsel me out of this. But you know what? If you are a wise son, all you got to do is listen to two sermons and you're done. The truth that you find in those sermons will set you free if only you would apply it to your life. Now, we have people, young people here that visit our church once a year. And there are, there are two kinds of people that, two kinds of people that visit. The first person, when they visit, they're at a place worse than when they left. And they're, they're, they're looking for personal one-on-one counseling and, you know, and prayer and counseling and counseling and prayer. And then there's the second kind of person. They, when they come back, they're doing better than when they left. You know, usually what the difference is, the first person I ask them, you know, I start summing up a teaching because I go, man, if you listen to my sermon from five weeks ago, you will be set free from the issues you're going through right now. And I start summing up that sermon and then I pause and say, wait, 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 have you been listening to our podcast? And that person will most definitely say, what podcast? Or they will say, oh, no, I stopped listening to it uh, a couple weeks after I left. But for the person who's doing better, they're stewarding the words that they're receiving. They're learning to walk in truth. Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, don't get me wrong. There are such things as demonic bondage that Satan uses to steal, kill, and destroy from Christians. There are demonic bondages that people struggle with. But let me tell you something right now. Even if I look at you and I cast out a demon from you, you, won't, you might get free, but you won't stay free unless you have the truth. Let's turn to a passage here where Jesus talks about this. Turn to Matthew 12, 43. Matthew 12, 43. Look at Matthew 12, 43. Let me read that for us. Now, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my oikos. Somebody take note of that, all right? I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. This is a picture of a person who's just been delivered and set free. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And then they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. You know, the Bible said in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the house of God. And it is a house that is to be a pillar of truth. You know, by essence, by definition... If you join a house of God, you don't relate to just a pastor who preaches. You don't just relate to a physical building. You have to relate to the rest of the body of Christ. You got to relate to the rest of the family of God, the house of God, the family of God. But you know what? Some people, they refuse to join a house. In fact, they have a very individualistic idea of Christianity. And they decide, you know what? I'm just going to attend here and there. But I'm not going to get committed. I don't, I don't want people controlling my life. And they're afraid. And they don't trust anybody. And they just want to be alone. And they think that they are the house of God. By me, myself, and I, I'm the house of God. Let me tell you something like right now. You think that's, if that's your definition of the house of God... You got definitely a, a definition of the house of God, but it ain't, it ain't God's definition. It's the devil's definition. If you refuse to join a house, a person who is not part of the house of God is really a house for the devil. Think, 
Think about the ownership that this evil spirit had upon the physical body of this person that he was tormenting for so long. In fact, this evil spirit has such an ownership that even when the spirit got cast out, the spirit returned because he was like, this is my house. This is my house. And this is why in the healing deliverance ministry is very important that after you deal with and you open up about all your hurts, you open up about all your occultic involvement, you confess your sins, you get inner healing. After you do all that, it's very important that you connect to the rest of the community. It's very important that you be committed to the house of God right away. You know why? Because if you don't fill yourself with anything, the devil will try to fill you with something worse than what you had before. You know what? Every time a demonic spirit leaves the life of a Christian that they've been tormenting for years, that demon doesn't want to go anywhere else. In his eyes, you are his house. That is a deception from hell. You are not the house of the devil. You are the house of God. But it's important that if you want to really be a pillar of truth, you got to be part of a Christian community that will test and approve of truth. You know, let me give you a good picture of a house. It's not even individual. It's not even just one person alone. These are like it's like a small group that calls themselves a church. All right, you guys may have heard of them, the Westboro Baptist Church in America. All right, this is a small family, one pastor and wife and a few of his kids and in-laws. What they do is. They go to the funerals of American soldiers that gave their lives fighting for freedom. They go to these soldiers and they picket the funerals. And they say, all these soldiers, all they're doing is they're greedy for oil. And they are right now burning in hell. They put up these signs. They go to abortion clinics. They, and already these women who are getting the abortions, you know, many of them are already filled with shame, guilt, fear. They go to these abortion clinics and they, they pick at these abortion clinics and say, all murderers go to hell. All those who commit a, 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 get an abortion, you guys are bur- going to burn in hell. You are murderers. You're filled with the devil. All right. And then they go to um, gay parades and then they pick at the gay parades. And then they say, all homosexuals deserve to die. They all need to be uh, fenced in, and they all need to die in one place. Okay? Westboro Baptist Church. Now, man, the media has a field day with these guys. Okay? They're just a church of, like, maybe, like, 10, 12 people. But the, the media loves to report on them because they love giving Christianity a bad name. So anybody that claims to be a Christian, even if it doesn't look like anything to do with Christianity, the media wants to misalign Christianity. So they're always reporting on Westboro Baptist Church. But let me tell you something right now. Westboro Baptist Church is not the house of God. Why? Because they're not a pillar of truth. They're filled with deception. Or even if they have what they think is truth, they don't have the spirit of truth. They're not applying truth in the way that is loving, that in a way that is speaking the truth in love. They're just going out and they're just expressing their rage and their anger. That's not a pillar of truth. That is just a house of the devil. And you know what? I don't even know if they're saved, man. I bet you if I met that, that pastor on the street, I will fight him. <laughs> you know, we would get... About three sentences in, and I'll be like, man, let's just not talk. Let's fight. Can I, can I just punch you in the face? And then you should turn the other cheek because Jesus taught you to do that. All right. I mean, look, man, I got no love for Westboro. I, I, I mean, I pray for God's mercy upon them. But if anything, man, they are incurring the wrath of God in a very creative way. Anyway, number one, God wants this house to be a pillar of truth. Let's go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 
awesome passage. Wonderful memory verse. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And sin, I'm sorry, verse 9. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You got to notice this word house here. In the Greek translation of this passage, is using the word oikos. And God is saying, now you got to know the context of this. The context of this is that Ezra, along with, the, uh, with Jerubbabel and Yeshua, they've come and they've rebuilt the temple. Now the Jews were, for their sin, God exiled them. They were, the whole temple that Solomon built, this glorious temple, was utterly destroyed. And after they were in exile for many years, God began to give them favor in the sight of the secular government. And the secular governors, King Darius and then Cyrus, or the Cyrus and Darius. Anyway, these kings began to show them favor and says, you, uh, they were like employees of the king. And these guys were troubled and things. And they said, you go and you can rebuild the temple of your people's religion. And so Ezra and... Zerubbabel, they go and they rebuild the temple. But the thing is, when the temple got rebuilt, it was beautiful. It was awesome. But a lot of the older generation began to weep because they knew that Solomon's original temple was far greater in glory. It's almost like this. It's like um, uh, let me try to be politically correct. Uh, uh, who cares? All right. So it's like New York City, World Trade Centers, right? Man, I used to live in New York City. And that was the signature building you looked for whenever you saw a movie. The moment you saw those Twin Towers, you knew you were talking about New York City. Anytime you were trapped in Staten Island or New Jersey and you weren't sure which way was New York City, you looked for those towers. And even from miles away, you can see those Twin Towers. They're amazingly high. And it's like after Twin Towers, they collapse. It's like they rebuild the Twin Towers. But then it's like, I don't know, like 15 floors high. If you were of the generation that saw the Twin Towers when they were like 100 and whatever, 16 floors high. And you see a, a, a building that's supposed to re- be restored and you only see about 15, 16 floors. What are you going to do? You're going to weep. And so that's what the people were doing. And so to those people, God says this prophecy. He says, I, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, when you understand the rich history of the word oikos, the house of God, you know that God, when he's prophesying this, through Haggai. God's not just talking about a physical temple. He's talking about the house of God that is to come. And he's saying that the house of God, the church of the living God that is to come, is going to have a far greater glory than anything mankind has ever seen. What's my second point? My second point is, God wants to fill his house with glory. In this church right here, I'm telling you right now, all right, There are some amazing things that we've been seeing, but the best is still yet to come. The glory of the latter house, as the house continues to mature and grow, the glory that we're going to see here in this house, because God wants to fill this house with glory, it's going to be greater and greater and greater. And you are living stones that make up this house. And the Bible says that each of us, As we behold Jesus, we are being transformed from ever-increasing glory, from glory 
to glory. As all of you mature and you guys are united together, each part doing its part, we're, great, we're growing into a greater glory. And number two, right? God wants to fill his house with glory. Let's go to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. This is a story where Jacob, he has a dream. Let's look at verse 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? And check this out. This is none other than the Bayit Elohim. This is none other than the house of God. The oikos theu of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Okay. So we have this very supernatural experience that Jacob has. He's out in the desert. He's sleeping alone using the, a stone for a pillow. Anyone ever used a stone for a pillow? Anyone, anyone lived as a cowboy before? Um, he's just taking, getting some rest. And he has this vision of a stairway to heaven. And angels... <laughs> Descending, ascending. Now, I'm sure they weren't like climbing the ladder all cute. Like, uh, these are angels. They got wings, all right? Whew, they're just ascending and descending. And he's like, what is that? What is that? And he probably realized they're angels. He looks up and he sees a figure that seems with the presence of the Lord. And at the end of this experience, he says, this is none other. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. You know, every time you come into church here, that's what you'd be saying to yourself. I guarantee you, if Jacob came and had worship at New Philly, he would just go, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. I'll tell you right now, man, he, it, it was beyond his imagination that the house of God will go from a physical symbol To represent a spiritual house consisting of people making up the house of God. He he probably never even imagined it. If he came to this place, I guarantee he would say the same thing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Go to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Because we have to understand this Christologically. Now this vision that Jacob had wasn't just this cute vision where God's just trying to encourage Jacob. God is trying to set Jacob up. But not only Jacob. God's trying to set up his whole offspring. To understand what is happening in this vision. Alright look at uh, John chapter 1. Verse 50 and 51. Now this is Jesus talking to Nathaniel, And he tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel was so uh, perplexed by this prophetic uh, insight that Jesus had. That he was so impressed he started calling Jesus the son of God. And in verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man here? The easy answer is, is Jesus. Jesus likes to refer to himself in the third person. 
Okay, this is not unusual. We see it in entertainment all the time. The Rock likes to, you know, refer to himself in the third person. Do you smell what The Rock is cooking? The Rock wants to ask you a question. What do you think? It doesn't matter what you think. Right? It's it's not unusual. Jesus did it. He said, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, does this mean just Jesus' earthly public ministry? Because if you see it in a narrow sense, that's all you would think about. Oh, yeah, and then Nathaniel went on during three years of Jesus' public ministry. He saw angels in descend, uh, descending and ascending upon Jesus, the Son of Man. He saw that, he saw that, he saw that, and then uh, Jesus uh, was crucified and then ascended to heaven. Is that, is, that what, is that what he's talking about? Okay. I, I believe there's greater fulfillment than just Nathaniel being promised that he's going to see great things during his three years with Jesus. Jesus is not just talking about that. Jesus is talking about Jacob's original experience. Do you remember Jacob's original experience? What did he call that experience? What did he say at the end? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the, the Bayit Elohim, the Oikos Theu, the house of God. This is none other than the house of God. And then Jesus says, alluding to this passage, he says, Nathan, you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see angels descending ascending on the Son of Man. You're going to see heaven opened. Just like Jacob saw heaven open. You're going to see heaven open. What Jacob saw in a prophetic vision, a physical vision, you're going to see it being fulfilled figuratively in every way. But what God meant by that original vision. Let's talk about the house of God. So let me, let me go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Come on. Dig deep into your word, please. Let's go. Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't want to look around and you don't want to listen to this, all right. Hey, we got snacks afterwards. All right. Well, you will have your physical hunger filled to a, a small degree. But man, if you're hungry for the word, if you're hungry for truth, man, you got to listen to what I'm saying here. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. For through him... Let's talk about Jesus. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The okeoi to theu. Okay? Let's talk about the house of God. Same word, oikos. It comes from the same word, oikos. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay. Now, give me five more minutes. Give me five more minutes on top of that. Don't clap yet. All right, you're going to give me five more minutes. Check this out. Here's what I'm trying to say here, okay? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus, through him, right, let me get this right, through him we both have access to one spirit and the Father, so that you're now no longer strangers, but you are now members of the oikos of God. You are the members of the house of God. Through Jesus, you become a member of the house of God. Like a, you can think of it figuratively as a physical temple, you can also figure it, see, see it figuratively as a family of God. However, maybe you want to think about the word oikos, right? But it, all of it works. All of those meanings is it, very rich. And it says that Jesus is the cornerstone of this house. Now, Jesus promised wherever the Son of Man is, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is, Jesus is here in this house. And every church, every house that Jesus sets up, he's the chief cornerstone. And wherever Jesus is, the angels of God are to ascend and descend, and there are to be open heavens in that place. What am I trying to say? My third point is, God wants his house to be a place of open heaven. 
That, that, that theme has a rich meaning as well. You know, for, for God to curse a nation was to tell them that the ground beneath you will be like bronze and the sky above you like, will be like iron. You ever feel like when you pray, heavens like says do not disturb on it? Or you just feel like the sky is like iron. Nobody is listening to you up there. Right? Well, those are the images that God uses for the Israelites when he says, if you don't obey my word, you will be cursed. And the sky above you will be like iron. But have you been to many churches where the churches are not taking their place? They're not growing into maturity. And you go to that church and you feel like the heavens are closed You feel like you can't connect to God. And what I'm telling you today is that's not the way Jesus wants this church to be. That ain't it. Wherever Jesus is, that's where there's supposed to be open heavens. Angelic visitations. Healings to abound. And... On top of that, here in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the house of God is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, many evangelical scholars will recognize that this means, they will interpret it to mean that this is referring to the original 12 apostles, along with Apostle Paul and a few others that they're willing to accept. But other than that, then the early apostles and prophets, they believe that Ephesians chapter 2 is only talking about them. And that since that time, The office of apostle and prophet has closed. And then the office of pastor, teacher, and evangelist remains open. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into this controversy. But let me just tell you one piece of information. There's no place in the Bible that says that the first two offices are closed and the last three are still open. I mean, who, who made that decision? Right? But... It's a decision, I believe, that's made out of a fairly healthy concern. You know, it's a, uh, it's a mis... It is a misunderstanding to think that apostles are designated by God to write scripture. So a lot of evangelical scholars are scared to say, oh, there's modern-day apostles. Because if they're modern-day apostles, then apostles will be able to continue to add to this book. And they're afraid. We don't want nobody to add to this book. So therefore, we can't have apostles. So let's make up a doctrine that says there are no more apostles. And, you know, this is not just new modern-day scholars. These are, these are even traditional scholars that, that often thought like this. And I understand I sympathize with that concern. And I believe we are greatly indebted to the early apostles and prophets. They did an amazing work, especially Apostle Paul. Without Apostle Paul, Koreans will not be Christians. How many of you in here are Jews? Okay. We got one person who is one-tenth Jew... Another person that's like one half to whatever, right? None of y'all, all of y'all, rest of y'all would not be a Christian if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. We're greatly indebted to them. We're greatly indebted to them. But check this out. Uh, I'm going to read Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. I'm going to close with this. And I will close. Ezra 5 chap- chapter 5 verse 2. Now this is where God gives a decree for the Israelites to come back from their exile and rebuild the broken temple. Rebuild the house. The bayit, the, the oikos. Okay? So they're coming back to rebuild the house. Check out Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Jeho- Josadak, arose and began to rebuild what? Everybody say it. To rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, I I believe here we got a powerful prophetic picture right here. A powerful prophetic picture of what God, I believe, is doing at this hour. Just as for many generations, the Jews, their temple was broken down. It It was shattered by God's favor. God started to raise up leaders that would return and rebuild his house. Now, back then, it was a physical temple. On this side of the cross, God is still rebuilding his house. Churches have lost their vision. 
churches that never had a vision. God is raising up Jerubbabel's along with prophets like Haggai to accompany them to go back and rebuild the fallen houses, to rebuild churches that have become really a haven for devils, for God to invade those places, establish them as pillars of truth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right. Good. Good. Okay. This is my final point. Here, check this out. All right. Come on. The church, just like in Ezra's time, the church today needs to be rebuilt. It really does. What we got going on here at New Philly, this is a prototype, I believe, of what God wants to keep doing for many churches in the nations. He wants to rebuild his house. And he wants to fill his house with glory. He wants to establish his house as a pillar of truth. He wants the, tr- the house of God to be a place of open heavens. But he's looking for leaders. He's looking for Jerubbabels. But check this out. Where back then, you needed a political leader like Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, the son of Josadak. You needed political leaders to oversee almost like a con- ad hoc construction company. On this side of the cross, God is not looking for just political leaders that are going to oversee construction companies. He needs spiritual fathers. Why? Because essentially the oikos of God is not a physical building or a temple or a house of worship. First and primarily, it is a family of God. And you just cannot build a family with just a bunch of sons and daughters. You need a mature son to rise up and function as a father. You know why we need sonship? Because without sonship, the church of God, the house of God cannot be rebuilt. If all you have is Bible study teachers, seminary graduates and experts, but you don't have spiritual fathers... You're going to just end up gathering a bunch of orphans. God's not trying to build an orphanage. He's trying to build an oikos. A family. A house that's strong. A house filled with glory. A house of open heavens. You guys hear what I'm trying to say here? And and the beautiful thing is, after Ezra rebuilt the temple, who goes next? What's after Ezra? What does Nehemiah do? Does he repaint the temple? Okay. He rebuilds the city. Before we can touch the city, the house has got to be in order. The church of God has got to be strong. God didn't call them to go rebuild the city first. He said, you go rebuild my house first. And once my house is in order, I'll show you favor. You know, there is so much favor on Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And all the, all the governors that were working with them, there's so much favor on them. They had royal treasury. Like, if you read in uh, Ezra 6, King Darius, he issues a decree. The original decree was made by another king, right? King Cyrus, I believe, yeah. Yeah, King Cyrus makes the first decree and he releases all these resources, Right? And then these uh, guys who oppose the work and they say, you know, I want you all to check the royal records to see if this is real. And then King Darius checks the decree and he realizes, yes, it is real. So we know what he does. He says, release more resources. (laughs) The temple got rebuilt with the quickness. Because they had the resources and they also had the people. And once they were done with the temple, they went and rebuilt the city. New Philly, we have a call to, first of all, rebuild houses of God all over the earth. Houses that are pillars of truth, full of glory, and are, that have open heavens. When you have houses like that, it's unstoppable. Let me tell you something right now. I'm no prophet. Let me tell you something now. 
What God started here at New Philly is unstoppable. Unstoppable. I don't care if some missile came through this window right now. It'll still be unstoppable. Like five of y'all will somehow survive and you will go on and... Unstoppable. Let me tell you something right now. We have a calling to rebuild the house of God. And once the houses of God are rebuilt, God says, I want you to go and touch the city. I want you to build me a city. A city where the people of God, the house of God is being salt and light in that city. Injustice is being confronted. You know, the number one thing I learned in my wealth and poverty class. Let me tell you something right now. I mean, I'll close with this. Sorry. Let me tell you, the number one thing I learned in my wealth and poverty class, man, I'm over time, so let's just give up on it. I'm, I'm playing, I'm playing. No. Two more minutes, two more minutes. Look, my last point. While I learned in my wealth and poverty in, uh, in Christian traditions, I took a two-week intensive class the last two weeks. This is what I learned. When you give to the poor, if all you give, when you give to the poor is to meet their need and you do it out of mercy, out of a temporary mercy to meet their need, your charity can actually be toxic to the poor. You know why? Because in times, in times of crisis like the Japanese tsunami, we need, to, we need to come to people's aid. We need to pour in aid. But for perpetual poverty, if all you do is you establish a relationship. Let's say Chris Kim is really poor, dirt poor. Let's say I establish a relationship with him just strictly based on need to out of my mercy, out of my compassion for him, this relationship, by definition, has already turned sour. By definition, this relationship is not Christ, uh, it's not biblical. Okay, now what, uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Because we think as Christians, all we need is love. All we need is love. All you need is love. Man, that's not even a Christian song. <laughs> Shut up, all right? That's not a Christian song. All you need is not just love, okay? You need not only mercy, but if you really want to empower Chris to come out of his poverty, if all you do is keep giving to the poor, you're going to create a dependency for him and a sense of entitlement to that, to that um, giving that you're giving him. And he will not come out of his poverty. The way you help him is you got to give him not only mercy, but you got to help him overcome the injustices that are keeping him in that poverty. So when we give to the poor, when we give to poor countries, when whenever we do missions, God's given me a new paradigm, a, a more biblical paradigm. Because in the Bible, it always stresses mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. If all you do is mercy, 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 they will continue as poor, poor, poor. You got to bring justice. You got to bring education so these kids stop selling themselves to sexual slavery. Or, or their parents keep selling them a sex. You've got to bring justice. You've got to bring development. So next year, I'm getting rid of all of our summer mission trips. Getting rid of all the short-term mission trips. Okay. I'm not playing. I'm not playing. We're going to redo missions completely because I feel like we've been short-sighted even in our missions work. And so, man, this wealth and poverty class has revolutionized my thinking in terms of, um, yeah, mercy and justice. We need mercy and justice, trust me. Mercy and justice. Even the cross, what is it? It's mercy and justice. If we can't have a, 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 mercy, a balanced approach toward helping the poor, all you do is continue uh, to just enslave them. You know, the, the whole concept of Jubilee, you know what it was meant to do? Let me just, let me end with this, sorry. <laughs> whole concept of Jubilee. <coughs> the gist of it is, every seven years, if you had a hard time, let's say you, um, <coughs> your relatives die, and you have no source of income, and you own a piece of property, and the only way that you can feed yourself is you sell the property to your neighbor. Now you got this money, you feed yourself, right? Or if it, things got really bad, you didn't have land. So what did you do? You sold yourself. You sold yourself as a slave, right? And then you get a, some kind of money and you also get, you know, fed by your master, right? Here's the thing. For Hebrews, for, for people in the covenant community, 
God commanded, He set certain limits on property rights. Now, in our post-industrial revolution uh, economy, our capitalist economy, we have no concept of limits on property rights. If I start talking about Chaihan, you have limits on your property. You have limits on the cash in your wallet. You, God has placed certain limits on how you are to use that money. Chaihan will be like, hey, don't touch me. You crazy pastor? Don't you know we live in a capitalist society? Can't tell me what to do with my money. What do you think? God told the Jews what to do with their money. And that spirit, I believe, continues to live on. And we've kind of lost sight of that. But here's the thing. Uh, so every seven years, right, people were to be freed. And every 49 onto the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, which is seven times seven, right? On the 50th year, everything was to be returned to the original owner. Okay. What am I trying to get at? What I'm trying to get at is God is constantly telling people who are in poverty, I want you to get back on your feet. I'm giving you a new beginning. Get back on your feet. Get back on your feet. Get back on your feet. Do you hear what I'm saying? So that even on the 40, after the 49th year, you had just complete access to get back on your feet. But the sad part is, the Jews, historically, uh, historians can, cannot figure out if the Jews ever got to celebrate a jubilee, ever. They've never reached the 50th year. Well, that's where Jesus comes in. You know, Jesus comes in and he sets us free, doesn't he? He sets us free, not as just servants or as slaves. He sets us free as sons. It's a permanent, everlasting freedom. And when we look at the poor, we have to see them the same way. When we look at the poor, if all we're thinking is, oh, I'm rich, you're poor, I'm here for you to depend on me so that you can have your, have your sustenance. That's a completely, that's missing jubilee. That's missing the heart of Christ. That's missing uh, the biblical laws on limits on property rights. The heart should be, here's some food for you to get through today, Chris Kim. You poor poverty. You're, you, look at your shorts. Man, it's just completely... Those shoes. Oh, my goodness. Let me help you. But you don't stop there. You say, how can I get you out of your poverty? What's the oppression, the injustices that you're facing that's keeping you in that poverty? And that you partner with him to pick him out of that. Pick him out of that mud of that poverty. So that he can now be established to contribute to society. That's always the model that the Bible gives us. Now how did I get into that? How did I get into that? Yeah, we got to rebuild the city. I don't know. Let's, I don't know how I got into that. Let's, let's close in prayer. All right. Let's close in prayer right now. Father, I just thank you, Lord. That you've called us to an amazing house. And Father Lord, as you have been rebuilding your house, our prayer is that God, that New Philly would be a house, a pillar of truth, a house full of glory, and a house in which there are open heavens. Jesus, you are the cornerstone of this house. May you open the heavens over us. May the angels of God ascend and descend upon this place. And may we continually say with the uh, words of Jacob, how awesome is this place. What an amazing joy and privilege it is to be with God's people in his house. This is none other than the house of God. Lord, continue to build your house here at New Philly. Build your house all over the nations. And then may your house go on to touch the city to bring both mercy and justice into the city because there are so many poor there are so many who are oppressed there are so many that are wronged in this city so many women trapped so many uh, orphans with no hope god we want to be those who manifest your heart we want to undo the yokes of injustice in the city Father, we know that we can't go out and try to play Rambo. We need to be part of a house where we're continually affirmed and sustained and built up, growing up, growing up into maturity. May we manifest Christ wherever we go.
Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.